Welcome to another edition of Making Money, the show that tries to dispense a little financial literacy to those of you who may require more. The financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager, is the man who dispenses the knowledge. I'm Gord Whitehead, the guy who asks the questions. Ron, we started a series on inflation, deflation, and stagflation. We covered inflation last week. Now we're going to talk about deflation. And I always think of footballs running out of air. Same thing happens to an economy. It runs out of gas. Is that is that what causes deflation usually? Deflation is, I guess the best analogy, Gord, is imagine that you're driving down the road and you get a big spike in your tire. But you figure, ah, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, I've got one of these little pumps that I can hook into my cigarette lighter, and uh, I'll just pump it up enough and drive to the gas station. Anyway, so you're putting air in, but the air is coming out faster than the air is going in. And that's sort of the story of deflation. Deflation is falling prices and decreasing asset values, and those are really the symptoms. It's like taking your temperature and you see that uh, you're, you're at 102. You know you've got something going on inside you. So typically the economy slows, demands for goods and services, they drop off. Employees are laid off as production slows down. You have higher employment, which means fewer people will have money to spend, which kicks off a whole new round of layoffs and production slowing. Uh, government tries to counteract that with lower interest rates. And during deflationary times, investors really need to focus on capital preservation rather than being too frisky with their money. Just focus on not return on capital, but return of capital. So, okay, so with, with what's going on right now, though, Ron, some of the points you hit in there, I mean, people are getting laid off. Uh, production is down. Interest rates are already at historical lows. Like, we're in a really difficult situation here right now, aren't we? We certainly are. And if you take a look at the trends, there's some very powerful trends. And I would use the analogy that we're, we're at a point in a river where two branches of that river meet. And you've got cross currents, you've got eddies, you've got backwaters, you've got all kinds of stuff that's disrupting the orderly flow. So there's some things in the economy, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, which look inflationary, and especially financial assets, stocks in particular. And there's some areas of the economy that look wildly deflationary because of the pandemic. And one of these two trends is going to take hold here. And I don't know when that is. I don't know whether it's in the next six months or year or two years. I mean, Japan, for example, has been in a sort of deflationary spiral. And uh, that started in 1989, and they're still having trouble pulling themselves out of it. So we've been in a deflationary uh, cycle or a disinflationary cycle for quite a while. And you don't know what's going to happen, but you see things that are definitely deflationary, like productivity gains. You know, you look at AI, you look at robots, you look at the Internet, you look at other technology breakthroughs that have pushed productivity up. And, of course, when productivity goes up, and, and on the other side of it, you'll, you've had layoffs because as these machines get more efficient, you know, the other day I saw a machine that makes hamburgers, milkshakes, and french fries. And 
Well, that, as wages go up, companies find more and more ways to displace these laborers. And with AI and robots becoming so sophisticated, you're seeing that put a big dent on the, the population. I mean, if we have trucks that can drive themselves, well, in the United States alone, there's a million truckers. What are they going to do for work? You have an aging population. As people get older, they save more and spend less, and that's certainly happening. International trade, well, we've had the Trump administration pushing back, but outsourcing to low-cost countries keeps prices and labor in check. That's deflationary. We have high unemployment. That's deflationary, a combination of automation and, and uh, the COVID academic, uh, epidemic. You have a rising Canadian dollar. Uh, that makes foreign goods cheaper. That's deflationary. You have rising taxes. Well, that's certainly deflationary because there's less money in our pockets to do things. And we have falling interest rates. So, And falling interest rates are one of the signs that uh, you're in a deflationary time. So it is very difficult out there when you have these an inflationary stream and a deflationary stream uh, trying to work themselves out which one will be the dominant theme going forward. That's why we decided to take some time, spend three weeks, go through inflation, deflation, stagflation, so that investors looking at what's going on when one of these dominant themes breaks out has the tools to know how to invest. So that's what we've been trying to get across on this three-week series, is give you the tools you need because... One way or the other, this thing is going to get resolved. It's almost I'm thinking to myself, it would be interesting to take my teacup to a leaf reader and see what they could make out of this. Because it's so confusing, Ron. I, there's so many mixed messages, as you say, out there now. It's hard to, to get an idea of which way we're going and when things are going to happen. So much uncertainty, I guess, is the best way to put it. And we've never had government intervention like this, which makes it even more... Um, Concerning? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a, good way to, that's a good way to look at it, you know? I mean, Gord, can you ever remember a time where uh, if, I mean, in the past we've had uh, diphtheria, we've had uh, polio, flus. Yeah. yeah, we've had other pandemics before, but we've never had governments intervening like this. And they call it the, 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 the gap. And what the gap is, is that if the pandemics caused a 20% drop in GDP, well, you, you borrow or you uh, print money to fill that gap up. But the, the productivity gap, as it's, as it's called, is being filled and then some. So the government is continuing to pour money into this way beyond what the economy has been losing. And where's that going to take you? That's why all this is so confusing. And, you know, if you're a layperson and uh, you're not familiar with economics at all, you know, this is a real head-scratcher because right now, to be honest with you, you hear all these predictions. And if you go back and look at how accurate most of these predictions were, the vast majority of them have been so far wrong because after 2007, 2009, where we started to see massive government intervention in so many ways, not just in printing money, but injecting it into certain areas of the economy, uh, passing it on to individuals, bailing out banks, bailing out foreign banks. 
we just haven't seen anything of this scale in the past. And so that's why if, you know, some of the answers we give aren't definitive, they're meant to be that way because nobody knows exactly how this is going to be playing out. Most of the guesses have been totally wrong. So here we are. Let's let's accept that the deflation is maybe going to be the dominant force here. Uh, I know that maybe that's not exactly how you feel, but let's hypothesize that that's what's going to happen. What is the best strategy in a cycle like this? Okay, in a, in a cycle like this, Gord, you want to hold cash and short-term money market funds. Um, a currency's buying power increases during inflationary times. So the value of money is going up. So if you keep your money short-term, the value goes up. Also, the debt rises because the debt is denominated in currency. And if currencies are rising, the value of your debt is actually increasing versus in inflation because of the extra money, uh, what is happening that is being put into circulation, the value of debt goes down. So with the value of debt rising, uh, you want to increase uh, or uh, you want to decrease your debt during times of deflation. In In deflationary times, prices usually fall? Prices fall and the value of currency rises. So as prices go down, your buying power increases. So if you could, a dollar would buy you one item in deflation, a dollar will buy you, let's say, maybe 1.2 or 1.3 items. So the value of your currency increases, the value of the items you're purchasing drops. So you should maybe, for instance, rent rather than own. Rent rather than owning makes really good sense because you can stand back and let landlords watch the values of their properties decline. And typically during periods of deflation, rent also comes down. And that's one reason that that the values drop. So if you're renting in times of deflation rather than owning, typically what's happening is uh, landlords got a double whammy. They're getting less rent and the values of their properties are dropping. So good time to be sitting on the sidelines. What if we hold stocks? What's, What's the strategy there if we have a stock portfolio? Well, in deflationary periods, prices fall, which is bad for stock ownership. So only own companies that pay high dividends. And if you own a company and you're producing goods, if the value of those goods keeps falling, you're making less money with each one of these items that you're producing. And so when that happens all the way across the economy, it usually leads to a bear market. So in cases where you have deflation, confine your stock market investing to deflation-proof sectors that include uh, utilities and essentially healthcare, because healthcare costs, if you go back and look at during times of inflation, or frankly, a, a classic model of that is going to Japan, you say that healthcare prices it, it costs, and uh, the amount of healthcare being used continue to rise, even though we are seeing deflation. So those are a couple good sectors to look at. And we have to keep an eye on interest rates. And right now, I mean, as I say, we're at historical lows pretty much, aren't we? Yeah, interest rates are are falling, but how much further do they have to go? And so um, typically when you're at the start of a deflationary cycle and you see rates starting to go down as the um, central banks start loosening up to lower interest rates, try and stimulate the economy and get things moving again, uh, when interest rates drop, um, that's the time to buy longer maturity bonds and GICs because you're locking in those higher rates. 
Okay, so that's deflation. Now, the other one that's left in this triumvirate, if you will, is stagflation, and we're going to cover that next week. But before we get to that, Ron, we had a couple of questions sent to us. First one, and it, it kind of ties into what you were just talking about, what is, is the best GIC to invest in right now? That's, that's a tough question. Yeah, well, you know, with rates fluctuating the way they are, and frankly, if you're a refugee trying to find a place to hide until you can figure this out, um, some of the smaller institutions, trust uh, companies and other local financial institutions to attract investors typically offer better rates than the mainline big uh, financial institutions in this country do. So what you want to do is you really uh, want to be able to do a survey of these smaller institutions. And I found a good place to do that is a website called ratehub.ca. So www.ratehub.ca. There's a couple other sites, but that's the one I typically go to when I'm looking at uh, comparing GIC rates. And it gives you most of the major institutions across Canada. And you'll find that the smaller ones will typically give you sometimes significantly better rates. What you have to remember is that with these smaller financial institutions, there's more risk. So if you are going with a smaller financial institution, remember that GIC or Canadian Depositors Insurance um, will cover you up to $100,000. So when you're going with smaller institutions, make sure that you keep... Um, your deposits, uh, you limit the size of them to that $100,000 mark. Okay, the other question uh, concerns something that actually made the news here a couple of weeks ago during the GameStop thing. That's BlackBerry. Somebody asked about BlackBerry shares. They still have some that they bought at $40 a share. What are your thoughts there? Well, I, I think what that person has done, like if you go back to 2007, Gord, BlackBerry was trading almost $250. So the person either caught it on the elevator ride up or the elevator ride back down. And um, I owned BlackBerry at one time, and that was a long time ago. And I, was, I caught it on the way down, but it kept going down. So what I tend to do is that usually toward the end of the year, I look at if I've taken some profits in my portfolio, so that I've got a capital gain that's uh, subject to tax. I usually go through, and if I have some losers in the portfolio, I try to offset the gains I have to limit the tax. So I don't have a lot of stocks where I've made mistakes on that have been in my portfolio for a decade, or in this case, uh, it looks like almost 15 years this person's held that stock. Uh, I tend to weed them out as I go along and uh, keep the performing ones and try to get rid of the non-performing ones. And recently, uh, BlackBerry made it up to $36 a share. And the Reddit crowd, the, the Wall Street wealth bets, um, Robin Hood, these guys are chasing things. And I, I certainly know that um, BlackBerry has been uh, gone up and down because they've had buys, and then there'll be a surge, and the stock will drop back, and then somebody else will say, get in, and the, the, the herd piles into this. So if you get one of those extraordinary spikes again, which uh, very much could happen, considering the state of the market and how 
small investors have been going crazy over stocks. Um, I would sell it at any opportunity you have. I just think there's brighter opportunities elsewhere. And I think it, it bears mentioning too, Ron, that they're out of the handset business. They're not making phones anymore. They're the the, the bulk of their work is encryption and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and at, like I say, this is uh, this is advice that uh, <clears throat> I give. If if I still had BlackBerry, um, that is what I'd be doing. And and certainly since I'm retired, I can't give financial advice to others, but I could tell you what I do, and I'd certainly um, look at any spikes here. I take the opportunity to, to, to sell that stock. Get out of Dodge. All right. We're back next week to tackle stagflation. And remember, if you have a question for us, you can reach us through our website, letsmakemoney.ca. You can also get to us through the cfcw.com portal. Those emails will come directly to Ron and myself, and we'll be happy to address them in upcoming episodes. On behalf of the, the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.